Good morning. I have a question. I need, I need some response from you all. How many of you read the last chapter of a book before you even start the book? Okay. How many of you read books as God intended them to be read from front to back? Okay. I read this interesting study this week that said that people who read the last chapter of a book first, it actually takes them 10 times as long to recover from heart surgery. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, it's a lie. I didn't read that. I just am trying to stop the madness for you. I really dislike knowing the end of a story before the beginning, which is why it pains me that this morning I will have to tell you the conclusion of two stories without you having read for yourself or seen for yourself these movies or the story. I'm hoping some of you will have seen them or read them, but not everyone. But it's worth it because one of these stories is so incredible that I think it has the power to transform how we see God and the way that we relate to other people. So here's another question. How many of you have actually seen Back to the Future? Right. Okay, so I'm, not, I'm only ruining this for a few people in here, and that makes me feel better. So in the beginning, we see Marty's current life. His dad still gets picked on by the same bully from high school. His mom drinks too much and is miserable, and his friend Doc dies. So then he goes back in time and he fixes everything. His dad has a great career, his mom is happy, and Doc is alive. And we love these happy endings. The stories of rags to riches, people who go from insignificance to significance. But more often than not, we love them because they seem so rare. In our own lives, we don't always get these lucky breaks, these chance meetings. Often the marriage ends, we're fighting an addiction, we didn't get the promotion, kids don't call home, sometimes we feel like our day is just refilling sippy cups, or going to another night shift. And even in our faith journey, we can be at a place of doubt, or skepticism, or having a relationship with Jesus, and still wonder what it is we really have to offer to God. What is it that God sees in us? Last week, Matt talked about how God can be good in the midst of difficult circumstances. This morning, we'll take it a bit farther. Can God not only be good, but can he have a good plan for our lives? Can he know the most intimate details of who we are and where we've been and have something for us in the future? So this morning we're going to discover what could be for us in chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. It's stuck right in the middle of your Bible, and there's only four chapters in the book, but it has so much in there. But before we can jump into chapter 2, you have to know what happened in chapter 1. So I'm going to give you the Spark Notes version. Everybody know what the Spark Notes version is? means that your college career was like mine, if you do. So here's the Spark Notes version. You have to know that this time in history is full of social upheaval, political discourse. The people of Israel have turned their back on God. This is not bedtime story material. This is blood and gore. But in the midst of all of this, there are still these pockets of people who have held on to faith and even people who are finding faith. And there are three very important characters that you need to know. 
So first, there is Naomi, the mother-in-law, and she's a good mother-in-law. And then there's Ruth, the Moabite, Naomi's daughter-in-law, and then Boaz, the awesome guy. And to set the story up for you, Naomi, the mother-in-law, she had a husband and two sons, and they lived in this place called Bethlehem. But then there's a famine, very bad, so they walk themselves over to another country, Moab. Problem is, Israelites are not supposed to be friends with or live near Moabites. Second problem, you are really, really not supposed to marry Moabites, and her sons both marry a Moabite. Things get worse. The dad and the two sons die. Aren't you glad I'm telling you this story? They're dead, and now all that's left is Ruth and her two daughter-in-laws. And she hears that there is food back in Bethlehem. And so if you're going to have to live your life as a widow, at the bottom of the social ladder, why not at least do it in your own culture? So she and her two daughter-in-laws, they pack up and they start walking to Bethlehem. And somewhere along the way, she stops. And she says, girls, this is crazy. Go back to Moab. You know, you can live with your parents. You have a place to live. You know the language and the culture. You have a chance of getting remarried and having children. If you come to Bethlehem, people are going to hate you. You're probably not going to be able to get remarried. You have no future. And so the one daughter's like, I love you. And they're both like, we want to stay. But the one daughter-in-law goes back. But Ruth, the spotlight shines on her in this moment. And she looks at Naomi, and she says this epic line that probably most of you have heard. She said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And so Naomi knows Ruth is, she's not turning back. And so both of them walk the rest of the way to Bethlehem. Now, the craziest thing about this is that the only Jewish people that Ruth has known thus far is this family. And they had a famine, they had to leave their homeland. And the sons and the father dies. And the only real Jewish person she knows now is a widow. So what is worth following? Somehow, in this family, she had discovered a God that was so different than anything she had known before, that he was worth giving up everything and walking to a place where she had no idea what her future held. And, you know, we've said that Israelites didn't like Moabites, but I want to make this very clear. So we're going to look at some scriptures. No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. You shall never promote the welfare or the prosperity. Their prosperity as long as you live. Not looking good for her. Moab is my wash basin. Not positive. The Moabites shall be trodden down in their place as straw is trodden down in a dung pit. I don't know if anyone's ever returned or referred to your hometown or country of origin as a dung pit, but it's an indication that you're probably not going to have a close friendship later in life. So this, this is what Ruth is walking into. And chapter 2 begins, and we meet our third character. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
Boaz is the awesome guy. He is wealthy. He's a business owner. Anyone has, everyone has great things to say about him. He is the kind of guy you want your daughter to marry. Here in Israel, clans and families are everything. And it's a little strange to us, but it's kind of like your whole family gets the state of Montana and no one ever moves away. And you do not need Ancestry.com to figure out who you're related to because everybody already knows. Everybody knows whose family is whose and who's important and who's not important. Now they're back in Bethlehem and they need food. And Ruth finds out that there's this really important structure in their society. God had provided laws that would help the three most vulnerable people in their society, orphans, widows, and outsiders. And that's check, check for two for her. Because they didn't get to own land. They didn't get crops. They didn't get farms. So the only way they would be able to eat is that farmers would leave the corners, the edges of their fields, and anything that was dropped, these were left for the most vulnerable people in society to go back and pick up. Ruth didn't take a personality test and choose gleaner, as they called them. This was about survival. And so she picked up grain in the hot sun. She fulfilled the commitment she had made back on that road in Moab. Now this goes, again, against everything inside of me, but I'm going to tell you the end of the story. Here it goes. Ruth and Boaz end up together. They have a kid. That kid's descendants are King David and eventually Jesus. I did it. And no one's leaving. Don't leave. There is still more to the story. Because here's the big deal. Ruth didn't know the ending. Nobody stopped her and said, hey, Ruth, just, just hold on a little bit longer. Because here's the thing. There's going to be this dramatic, unexpected turn of events in your life. And I know it seems like your life is just going downhill right now. But something amazing is going to happen. That is not what Ruth expected. She didn't expect that any king was going to come from her life. Especially not the king of the universe. She isn't expecting a knight in shining armor to come save her. She's just carrying that promise out. Naomi's God, her God. This is where she is going to die. And the author has something else that's so important for us to get from chapter 1. There's this one strange-sounding word. This was originally written in Hebrew, and it's the word hased. And the Hebrew, right, the Hebrew speakers reading this, that would have jumped out at them. Because this word was most often used to describe how God felt towards people. It was this extravagant, above and beyond kindness. This always keeping a promise. Mercy. It was unexpected favor and grace. And they look at this and they see that Ruth showed said, and, and that's a big turn of events because this Moabite woman was not supposed to know what that was. She was not supposed to show Hesed to her Jewish mother-in-law. And they really didn't expect that God would have shown this kind of kindness to Ruth. Here's the question. 
What if God is not only with us when life is at its worst? What if he wasn't just with Ruth when her life was at the worst? But he has a plan, a good plan that is being worked out in those most difficult, difficult moments. Remember, the author is looking back. He knows the details of the story. And he's going to tell us about these moments, these it-just-so-happened moments. But he isn't talking about luck or just some serendipitous happening because they didn't believe in luck. They believed that everything was God working in their lives. And so here's how he describes the next events. It just turns out that the field she is working in belongs to Boaz. And it just so happened that Boaz came to check on his field. These moments where God has a grander story. Now Boaz gets there and he notices Ruth. And he asks, who is that? And we don't know if he was asking like, hey, who's that? Or if it was like, who is that? <laughs> and the Bible doesn't tell us. But... The person, the boss of the field, says, well, that's, that's Ruth the Moabite. And he doesn't go on and explain the backstory because he didn't have to. Apparently, Bethlehem had a news train, a small-town news train. Any of you grow up in a town where there was a small-town news train? I did. I went to high school in a very small school in western Pennsylvania. And there were not a lot of new kids that came to our school. But one year, a new girl came. And she looked very different than us because we lived under the gray clouds that blew in from Lake Erie. And this girl had this thing called a tan. <laughs> and she spoke with this just exotic accent. We would ask her to say her words again because it was amazing. And the small town news train brought us all the understanding that she was from this exotic foreign land called the Carolinas. <laughs> I did not making this up. It is true. This was an epic moment in our high school. And this is also epic moment when Boaz and Ruth have their first conversation. This Moabite woman and this powerful Jewish man. And he doesn't begin the conversation with, hello, Moabite widow gathering in my field. He doesn't say anything that reminds her of who she is, reminds her that she's really at the bottom. Instead, he says, my daughter, listen to me. Now, we need to acknowledge this is where the story could go weird. And we're supposed to apply God's word to our lives, but guys, do not use my daughter as a pickup line. This wasn't Boaz being creepy. This was a term of affection, of kindness for a younger woman. Boaz, from the very first moment, gives her dignity and value. Have you ever imagined what God would say to you if he started a conversation with you? if you heard him audibly or in the quiet of your mind. I think Boaz and Ruth's conversation has something to tell us about how God would speak to us and how God is going to speak to Ruth. See, Boaz skipped all of her past 
and he moves straight to her need for mercy and kindness in that moment. And he says really three very important things to her. He says, number one, I want you to stay in this field. Don't go anywhere else. Just work here. Work with my servants, the people I hired, the legitimate workers. And then he says something else. I have told my young men not to touch you and not to bother you. This was a dangerous thing for women to do alone. But he's giving her protection, and she'll be safe. And then he says, I know when you're working out here in the hot sun, you're going to get thirsty. Instead of going and finding your own water or bringing it with you, I want you to go over there and use, use that water that's for the people I hired, the water the men collect. And this, to the audience reading this, and to Ruth, is stunning. This just doesn't happen. He stops, he speaks to her, gives her dignity, and now is going to meet these very tangible physical needs that she has. And she's confused because she knows it's going to cost him something. It already cost him something to let all these people glean in his field. He didn't have to follow the law. But this is like a social cost, an awkward cost. This person taking a moment to talk to this person. And so she reminds him, you remember, I'm a foreigner, right? And you're treating me like one of your servants. And so why are you doing this? And Boaz tells her, and he starts by saying, I've been told about what you have done. Now in this, this moment, Ruth may have caught her breath. Maybe you identify. What does he mean, what I've done? These memories that bring about shame, Things I wish that I could forget, images that won't go away, mistakes I've made, things done to me that shouldn't have happened, a past I hope no one finds out about, a past I can't live down. Moabites were polytheistic, and they were known to offer human sacrifices. Imagine that as part of your childhood memories. There wasn't Sunday school, summer church camp, so... Was she disqualified, or we disqualified, from knowing God's kindness or being used by him? And the great news is that she wasn't, and you and I aren't. Boaz goes on to finish what he was starting to say. And he said, I've been told about what you've done for your mother-in-law. Since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland, and you came to live with a people you did not know before. He said, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take shelter. See, the, the punchline wasn't her past. The town had been talking about her has said her astonishing loving kindness and mercy it wasn't supposed to be the moabite woman ruth was what we call sometimes here we call a me too person she had this deep understanding of the grace and the kindness and the mercy that had been shown to her she knew how far she had been she knew she didn't deserve god's kindness but she had it and so she couldn't help but give that to her mother-in-law. How can I not love you the way I have been loved? Now she's known for her dependency on God. 
for the way that she sacrifices for others. And Boaz, he's not done. He has more to say to her. He says he invites her to pull up a chair. He invites her to come to dinner. And this was dinner that was supposed to just be for the landowner and for his real employees. There wasn't supposed to be a chair for a widow, for a Moabite. But this is an invitation, and it's a public declaration. She belongs here. In the same way all of you were invited, she has been invited, and that's her seat right there. That had to have been one of the greatest surprises Ruth had seen before. Boaz, his kindness towards her, could it be that there's a greater story that's unraveling here, that's happening in her life? It's at the end of chapter 2 that Naomi says something that is just absolutely profound in the way we understand God and our actions and how they meld together. So Ruth comes home and she tells Naomi everything that's happened in her day. She tells her about Boaz, about his mercy, about how he spoke to her with respect, dignity and standing, how he gave her food, food to take home, how he gave her water, he gave her a place at his table, he invited her to stay and to come back. And Naomi says this, she says, the Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness, his chesed to the living and to the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. God has not stopped showing his chesed. But how did he show them? See, it was through Boaz. God was using this willing brave Jewish man as a representation of his kindness towards Ruth and towards Naomi. So is Boaz just a superhero? Was he genetically created to show kindness and favor and love to the world? If so, it would be difficult to identify with him, but the good news is that we we can identify with him because Boaz was also a me too person. He had an understanding of the extreme kindness and mercy that had been shown to him. Because in part of Boaz's family line, there was this one woman. And if she had not taken an utterly courageous, incredible step and showed kindness to the Israelites, Boaz would never have existed. And just like Ruth the Moabite, this woman also has a tagline on her name. And you may remember the story of Rahab, the prostitute. Joshua 2, 12 through 13, records her words. She says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness, has said to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Rahab, the prostitute, from the city of Jericho, Israel's enemies, Yet she becomes part of God's family. God has a plan for her. God redeems her and makes something beautiful out of what was broken. And he didn't just let her in. She became part of the family. Somewhere along the line, she married someone. She was redeemed. And she becomes part of the most 
significant, important lineage of all time. Because her descendant will be a wealthy Jewish landowner who will marry a Moabite. And then down the line, there will be King David, and then their genetics will be part of the body of Jesus Christ. It's Boaz and Ruth, both the unexpected who are representing the character of God. And this will always catch people's attention, believer and non-believer, because it calls to something inside of us. We're created in the image of God, and this calls to that image of God inside of us that there is something right about what's being done there, something that is restoring goodness and what should have always been. If you're here and you're a skeptic or you're a doubter, then I want you to know that God loves making something beautiful out of broken things out of sordid family backgrounds, out of poor choices, out of pain, of things that were done to us. God loves to make foreigners his children. He loves to reconcile enemies. He loves to get all of us a seat at his table. So back to Boaz for a moment. He had everything. He had people that worked for him. He had a great 401k. Boaz didn't have to show Ruth that kindness. He was already fulfilling the law. He had let her glean. He didn't have to be a me too person, and neither do we. He could have just felt sorry for her. But Boaz wasn't satisfied just fulfilling the bare minimum of the law. He wanted to fulfill the heart of the law. The part about caring and protecting, transforming, making a different life for someone else. Because he couldn't and he wouldn't forget the kindness and mercy that had been shown to him. And Ruth, what about Ruth? She isn't just an acceptor of charity, this powerless person. Because Ruth could have gone back to Moab. She didn't need to be a Me Too person and walk straight into Bethlehem. Ruth and Boaz both decide that what they've been given is something that they want to reflect. And do you know what I love about this church? When I look around, when I'm out and about, wherever I go in Central and Clemson, I see you guys. I see kids and teenagers and singles and families and people in their golden years of life. I see you doing these things that are chesed, lavish over the top, above and beyond works of kindness and mercy. I see you going around the world and doing these things that are unexpected. But I think that we all know that there is so much more. We look around and we see these places where it seems like injustice wins, where it seems like cycles of pain are never going to be broken. We look at the lives of people we love who have these secrets, and we watch them struggle with addiction, with pain. We know that there is so much more chesed needed in our community. And here's the beautiful thing. God invites us to show this same brave, extravagant kindness. We can go beyond the bare minimum of Christian niceness. 
God is inviting us to so much deeper, a life that is so much richer. It's really seeing the 96,000, loving them the way we would want to love. God invites us to his table. He invites us all to take refuge in him, to sit at the table, to extend the same kindness and mercy and grace that we have all been shown. Let's pray. Jesus, we take a moment and we understand that we are so grateful. We remember what you have done for us, God. The moment we understood how far we were from you, the kindness and grace. God, we thank you for the opportunity to reflect that in the world around us. God, I pray for those who may have just slipped through the door, who wondered if they should be here this morning. And Jesus, I pray that you would speak to them, that they would know the depth of your love and your mercy. We thank you for your presence, Jesus. We thank you for your heart. In your precious name we pray, amen.